0: Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from chapter 14, verses six through 13. I'll be reading in Spanish. The English text will be on the screen as I read. Luego vi a otro ángel que volaba en medio del cielo y que llevaba el mensaje eterno de las buenas noticias para anunciarlo a los que viven en la tierra, a toda nación, tribu, lengua, Y pueblo. Gritaba a gran voz, teman a Dios y denle gloria porque ha llegado la hora de su juicio. Adoran al que hizo el cielo, la tierra, el mar y los manantiales. Lo seguía un segundo ángel que gritaba, ya cayó, ya cayó la gran Babilonia, la que hizo que todas las naciones bebieran el excitante vino de su adulterio. Los seguía un tercer ángel que clamaba a grandes voces, «Si alguien adora a la bestia y a su imagen y se deja poner en la frente o en la mano la marca de la bestia, beberá también del excitante vino de la ira de Dios» que en la copa de su ira está puro, no diluido. Será atormentado con fuego y azufre en presencia de los santos ángeles y del cordero. El humo de ese tormento sube por los siglos de los siglos. No habrá descanso ni de día ni de noche para el que adore a la bestia Y su imagen, ni para quien se deje poner la marca de su nombre. En esto consiste la perseverancia de los creyentes, los cuales obedecen los mandamientos de Dios y se mantienen fieles a Jesús. Entonces oí una voz del cielo que decía, Escribe. Escribe. Dichosos los que de ahora en adelante mueren en el Señor. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: All right. As you see, kids are dismissed Uh, for Children's Church again. Reminder to parents to pick up your kids right before, right after you take communion. As Pastor Josiah mentioned, we're uh, going through the book of Revelation, and we're uh, in the middle, uh, maybe tipping towards uh, the end of it. We will finish up this series uh, in the middle part of June, and then we'll be switching to our Summer in the Psalm series, where we'll be looking at ten psalms again this summer that we've done for the past uh, several summers. And you are getting more of a big picture of Revelation. The goal really is, is to find kind of a happy medium between uh, maybe going too quickly through it. Uh, part of it that is for me, because I need a lot of time to study some of this. There's so much Old Testament background to every single verse that you have to get into and study. Uh, but also, I didn't want to get so detailed that we mix, miss the bigger picture of what these visions are pointing to, especially the deeper theological realities. And as you know, Revelation is one of those books that people have a lot of opinions about. And a lot of it's confusing, a lot of it's clear. And one of the things I'm trying to emphasize with each and every one of these visions that we get to see with John in the book of Revelation is the theological point of each vision, to get you caught up in the vision itself, uh, to understand theologically what this means, so that even if you uh, see... It may be taking place mainly in the future, there's relevance for the original readers and the one and us, this modern-day group of people in the city of St. Paul, for there's relevance for us in our time as well. And one of the big things that I'm trying to show you, the, the purpose of revelation, what it really does serve, and this type of literature in scripture called apocalyptic literature, is the purpose of it is to unmask the things in front of you, to show you in light of God's plan in Christ his death and resurrection and that everything's unfolding the lamb has opened the scroll meaning that he's he's executing god's plan and that god will wrap up history one day in light of all that how do we ima- unmask the things in front of us to see them for They really are, especially the things that are big, intimidating, uh, maybe hopeless situations, things that are maybe big injustices in the world that you just don't feel like these things will ever be overcome. Revelation gives you a vision to look at these things in light of the death and resurrection of Christ and his second coming to say this is how you should really view these powerless things that are in front of you. Christ will take care of it. He has in his death and resurrection, and he will again. So that's what we're up to. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray and get into the second part of the vision that we started last week. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for weary hearts, uh, tired eyes, uh, these saints that, uh, because they're caught up in this world, uh, that's just full of beautiful things, but also full of tough things, broken things, Struggles of the flesh, struggles of of things in this world that seem to be bigger than us. That it's hard to face. It's hard to think that um, a day will be coming when all things will be made new. And I pray that we live in that tension right now. That we hear the hope that's in the Book of Revelation, the implications for that hope right now, and the call to be saints and sons and daughters of you, Lord, who Have patient endurance in everything that we face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you ever wonder why fantasy novels, movies, TV series are so popular? And they're especially popular among kids, but I know plenty of adults that also get into fantasy and sci-fi. There's a reason, I think, that uh, books and movies like Harry Potter or Star Wars, Lord of the Rings... Lying the Witch, in the Wardrobe, things like that are so popular. There are probably a lot of reasons you can answer a question like that, like why they're so popular, why people are drawn to it. But one person that might be a sort of expert that might have a, an angle on this is author J.K. Rowling. I was listening to an interview with her uh, recently, and that question was posed to her, and her answer uh, was essentially saying that Uh, especially kids, but people in general, are drawn to stories about magic and fantasy, mainly due because of this feeling of helplessness that they have. That's what she said. But she says books and and novels about magic help those who are feeling helpless to have this hope of being able to overcome the things that they're facing in their situation. And if you think about Harry Potter, that's exactly what the storyline is getting at. Harry Potter is an orphan, and he's living in a home with relatives that don't particularly like him, and it's a helpless situation, and yet he eventually discovers more about who his real parents are, and this ability that he has to harness a power bigger than himself to overcome these things. That's why many people would be drawn to a story like that, especially if you feel like you're helpless, especially if you feel like everything around you is bigger than yourself. And I think that's why these visions of Revelation are also powerful. But of course, there's a big difference between Revelation and a fantasy novel. In Revelation, these visions are pointing to a reality. John literally had these visions, and they're pointing to something that is true. And these symbols and these images are saying that this is actually the way that things really are. It's not something that we wish could be true, but it's something that we as gospel people can hold to be true. And last week, we started getting into this this next vision that uh, John is seeing, and we saw this this great vision of the rise of a great dragon and these two wild beasts. And the dragon repeatedly goes after this pregnant woman, and, and her and her son are symbols that point beyond themselves. The pregnant woman is God's people, and the son that she's about to give birth to is the Messiah. And... The, the dragon's going after them, repeatedly goes after them, and he is unsuccessful. And, and the woman gets away to the wilderness. This is a place that symbolizes God's protection. And the sun is lifted up into heaven, which draws us into that gospel story of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So, the dragon goes after the offspring of the woman and the siblings of the son and he calls a couple of reinforcements. The sea beast and the land beast are now called into this vision by the dragon and they represent how evil uses power and propaganda to turn people against God and towards the dragon who is Satan, the great adversary. But there is, in this vision, this resistance that's happening. These people that refuse to worship the beast and the dragon, these people that refuse to get caught up in this earthly power, and they resist, and they are called to patient endurance. These are God's people who don't bear the mark of the beast, but bear the seal of the land, the blood of the that washes over him. That's what we got introduced to last week, and now we're in the second half of this vision of how uh, God raises up an army to overcome the dragon and his beasts, and then also what God's judgment on these evil powers look like. But at this point in the vision, God's people, the resistance, they're up against a lot. But here we are going to see how they are facing this, this, this power that's bigger than themselves, but with a power from the gospel and the resurrected lamb that will overcome all things. So let's look at the second part of this vision on how this army is raised up to face the dragon and his beasts. Look at Revelation 14, verse 1. And then I looked, and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So John now sees Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who is installed as king of God's holy place. That's Mount Zion. And with Christ are his people who are sealed by God's name and with his presence. They are not marked by the beast, but they are marked by God and the Lamb. This is the second time in the book of Revelation that this 144,000 is referenced. Back in Revelation 7, they are referenced. And in that context, it's a drawing from imagery of the book of Numbers, which is a bunch of census data about organizing an army. And the number 144,000 carries theological significance. 12 times 12 times 1,000 is a number of completion. And 12 and 12 is the 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. This is the people of God that we're seeing. And not just a portion of the people of God, But all of God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation is part of the Lamb's army. And that's who God is rising up here to resist the dragon and his beasts. The text goes on to say that the Lamb's army is making some noise. They're worshiping God with a new song that only they know and only they can sing because they are redeemed by God. I was reflecting on that a lot this week. That is such... A, an amazing thing to think of, especially if you are like me and you like to chase that high of discovering a new song or a new musician. You ever had that experience where you just discover somebody new and you're just obsessed with that person? And you want to see them in concert or this new song? It's just this this beautiful rush uh, that that music lovers enjoy. And I, I was even talked to my daughter about this recently and how uh, I'm due for one of those. I got to discover a couple of recent uh, musicians last last year and I'm like, I need that level. I need that level to discover a new song, a new, a new group to be able to listen to. Usually, jo- Josiah is my hookup uh, for stuff like that. And every time I discover somebody new, my, my wife, by the way, is skeptical that I discovered it. It probably came from Josiah. That's usually, usually what she says. But I have this picture that here in heaven, this picture of all these saints worshiping the Lord, and they are singing a new song, a new song, that's just this amazing song that's better than any song that anybody has ever sung. Any, any musician has never crafted a song like this, and the redeem get to sing it, but only them, only they get to discover that. Only they get to sing the song. And it's such an amazing, loud rock concert happening in heaven, and it's so loud it's described as a roar of mighty waterfalls or a clap of loud thunder. This is the music and singing before God that is mighty and majestic. There's characteristics that the Lamb's army has that are described in verses 4 through 5. It says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are Blameless. So what's going on here? Why does this army of the Lamb bear these characteristics? Does it, is it really saying that, that only male virgins who never told a lie are a part of the 144,000 that's in heaven? Probably not. This is one of those things that should be a hint about the highly symbolic and theological nature of some of the images that John is seeing. Because if that's true, it's male virgins who never told a lie. Sorry, married men, you're not going to heaven, right? That's what that would mean if it was a literal sense, right? So what is this language actually getting at, right? What is, what is happening with the military background of 144,000 in mind, this may be an Old Testament reference to some ceremonial purity that happened in uh, the nation of Israel before they would go out to battle. In addition, later in the book of Revelation, we're going to be introduced to the great prostitute, which is another name for the city of Babylon. And Babylon it will show up later in this text, but it represents all of these like, evil kingdoms and these evil powers that are against God and his people. And so with that imagery in mind likely what it's being said here about God's army is that they resisted this temptation they they stayed pure they did not sleep with the great prostitute instead they remained faithful to Christ and to follow him and not the beast. That's what that language is getting at. They're also called the first fruits, which is imagery again from the Old Testament where there's a harvest and part of the harvest, the first fruit is set aside. That's holy to God. And these are a people from among the nations that are set aside. They're holy to God. And they have no lie in their mouths, which means that they are, it's not that they've never told a lie, but it's a very specific way of not lying. They have have been bearing witness to Christ. They've been proclaiming his gospel without shrinking back and without compromise. That's likely what that language is getting at. So when somebody comes to uh, somebody in the Lamb's army and they say, do you know the Lamb? Do you worship the Lamb? They say, you betcha. I don't know. I guess they have a Minnesota accent in heaven, all right? Well, that's what they say. They don't shrink back. They admit it. I follow the Lamb. I am in Christ. I am united with Him. That is the Lamb's army. And what's repeated in this part of the vision that came up a lot in last week's part of the vision as well is this call for God's army, the army of the Lamb, to be faithful. Revelation 14, 12 says, this call for patient endurance On the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. We're reminded here how the army of the Lamb fight, how we fight against the dragon and his beast. We don't use the same techniques of darkness that they use. Christians respond to unrighteousness, violence, lies, or persecution. They respond to those things with righteousness, peace, and truth. We don't fight the powers of darkness with techniques of darkness. We dispel the darkness with the light of Christ. And by doing so, we stay faithful to Christ without compromise. I recall reading a pastor's reminder that often fighting against the dragon and his beasts will look like the following in your daily life. It will look like praying in secret, sharing the good news with the broken. It will look like loving your spouse, being patient with your kids, Serving the marginalized, working heartily at your job, cultivating a cheerful heart, and giving generously. These are all descriptions of the tools at the army's disposal to dispel the darkness. And while others are participating in a culture war, Christians are called to follow the Lamb and to fight against the dragon with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the gospel of peace." This army is now in contrast to this enemy that's defeated, that's depicted as the city of Babylon. Let's look at these three announcements that angels give in this next part of the vision. Revel- Revelation 14:7 has the first angel announcing in a loud voice, "'Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water.'" So here's a heads up that God's judgment has come. It has arrived. And the certainty of this hour, if you know that this hour is here, the only appropriate response the angel declares is to fear God and to give him the glory that he's due because he is the sovereign creator of all things. Likely, this is drawing some imagery, too, from Philippians 2, because Philippians 2 reminds us that one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And some will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord with faith, with faith rather, and others will be forced to acknowledge the one that they have rejected. Remember, the Christian faith never claims to be a good idea or a good opinion. This is an objective truth that in some fashion will be acknowledged by everybody. The next angel says this in verse 8 of chapter 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. In Old Testament theology, Babylon represents an ungodly kingdom—not just literal Babylon in the Old Testament, but it became symbolic of any type of kingdom, any type of power that was against God and His people and His purposes. And often, and you're going to keep your eye on this as we keep going through these visions, but Babylon is going to be in contrast with the new city, the new Jerusalem, and the inhabitants of that city—the people that are that are marked by the Lamb—versus those that are caught up in Babylon and caught up in. the power of the beast and the dragon. This, 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 this imagery is going to keep unfolding throughout the rest of the book. Babylon, as I mentioned, is the great prostitute that uses wealth and might to turn people away from God towards the dragon and the beast. This is an unclean city filled with sinful deeds and immorality. And here, Babylon sa- it says that Babylon makes people drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is where the dragon and the beast forces allegiance, and once people drink from that cup, they're drunk with wine. This is, again, pulling Old Testament imagery that often pictures drunkenness as a form of being intoxicated by idolatry, making somebody blind and desensitized to righteousness, and they do that because they are consuming unfaithfulness, and that's the imagery here. The third and final announcement from the angel contrasts Babylon's wine with God's. Look at verses 9 through 10. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hands, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. The mark is referencing back to the end of chapter 13. The number 666 is a theological reference to imperfection. To bear this mark means that one has given their allegiance to the beast, the dragon, and are opposed to God and his purposes, and they're being contrasted yet again with those that bear the seal of the blood of the lamb. And what happens when somebody gives their allegiance to the beast and drinks wine from Babylon? They will drink, in God's judgment, a different wine, a stronger wine, which is the cup of God's wrath, And the wine will not be watered down like Babylon's, but will be poured at full strength. This imagery of wine shows up again uh, later in chapter 14, uh, and it pictures a harvest. And here John sees uh, maybe one harvest, pictured two different ways, maybe two. But the first one is depicted in verse 14. It says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Drawing imagery from Daniel 7, this son of man here is pictured as the risen Christ who is holding a sharp sickle. I grew up on a farm, and I don't ever recall using these, so if you're city folk, you probably have no idea maybe what this is talking about. We use combines nowadays, so we don't need uh, some of this older tools that, were, uh, that was being used uh, with the imagery being descripted here. But back in the day, this was a hand tool with a semicircular blade, and they used it in order to cut down crops to crops. Harvest them. And in this passage, the angel is announcing that the Son of Man is about to harvest because the time has come. Then the Son of Man takes a swipe over the entire earth like harvesting crops. And there's some debate among theologians at this point in the vision whether this is picturing uh, Christ harvesting his redeem or if this is another angle on God's judgment that's about to be described in greater detail. Uh, with the next angel, and it could go either way, and both are certainly theologically true, that Scripture uses the imagery for both, That in the end, there will be a great harvest where God separates the weeds from the wheat. What isn't debated is the second half of this harvest. In Revelation 14, 18, this is describing a horrible picture of God's judgment. Here an angel is wielding the sickle. He says, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of, ra- of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were, tram- they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. And this is one of the more graphic ways that these visions of Revelation depict God's wrath. If if blood makes you lightheaded, you might want to close your ears at this point. The imagery here is an old practice, an ancient practice of turning grapes into wine, and part of that process is putting it into a wine press. You throw grapes into this big tub where people stomp the grapes and push juice out the side of the tub into containers. And the vision here is not of juice, but rather the blood of those who reject God and his Messiah. And the quantity is described as nearly submerging a horse and going for a distance as far as the eye can see. The language here is likely recalling Old Testament descriptions that use hyperbole to describe battle, like in the book of Joel and Isaiah. And the distance is getting at the comprehensiveness of this judgment. It is a truly awful description of God's judgment meant to get you to ponder this. If this description is using merely symbols to describe God's judgment, how much more awful is the reality of it? And as truly as terrible as this description is, it actually wasn't when I was studying at this, this this passage this week, wasn't the one that stuck with me. Uh, I want to go back to verse 10 and 11 to, say, to show you this description in the vision of God's judgment. It says, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, for anyone who receives the mark of its name. The torment of the judgment is like burning sulfur, where the smoke rises for eternity. And this is a horrible description, so is the wine press. But for me, I don't know why this week, but the second half of the description, that struck me even more potently. There is no rest. There is no rest. Do you ever think about that as a description of God's judgment? There is no rest. No rest, forever and ever and ever. Let me try to get you to, to just go with me of why this stuck out a little bit, OK? Imagine this: unceasing striving uninterrupted fighting, unending suffering with no end in sight. Imagine one of your worst days or weeks where you're just exhausted from the brokenness and burdens of this world. You just want to go home, you want to lay down, and you want to take a nap. But when it comes to God's judgment, there will never be rest like that. There will never be a day where that will happen. The exhaustion will continue The weight will always be on their shoulders. There will be no end to the brokenness and burdens forever and ever and ever. Let's keep leaning in here. I mean, I think part of human nature is to look forward to a season of rest, a moment of rest, an hour of rest, a season of rest. That's why many of us look forward to MEA weekend you get a little break from the routine or christmas semester break, spring break and summer. And summer, those are all seasons that when you're so exhausted you just want something to change, the pace of life, the thing you're experiencing, you just want a break and so you look forward to it. But here God's judgment is describing that that summer never comes, and forever and ever and ever the fighting, the brokenness, the burdens, the suffering, the exhaustion continues forever and ever and ever. Continued work, continued striving, continued fighting day after day after day with no end in sight for eternity. That is a truly terrible description of God's judgment. But that's a description of judgment. Not redemption. What about salvation for weary saints that understand what restlessness feels like? Revelation 14, 12 through 13 says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest. From their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Those who die in the Lord, those who have faith up until the very end, will be blessed, and the passage says, they will rest. Their faith in Christ will save them, and their deeds will follow them, which are the fruit of their faith, and they will have a day of rest. This rest is described in greater detail in chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, and it's one of those passages where this vision that John is having is starting to fade, and the new one that's picturing these seven angels with bulls are starting to come into uh, the vision and it's mixing it up a little bit. But how it ends is in verses 12, uh, 2 through 4, which says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We're back to a picture of God's people singing, worshiping, and glorifying God in heaven in a place of rest from their labor. They will not only sing, but stand there because of Christ's victory over these powers. And what are they standing beside? Did you get that part of the picture? It's a sea. They're standing by a sea that is like a glass glowing with fire you remember the first part of the vision, the sea is the restless place of evil and the place where the dragon and the sea beast emerge. This is the place that's opposed to God. It's restless, it's chaotic, and it's exhausting. But in this scene, those that are in Christ, the sea is like glass, glowing with fire. Fire, that imagery of God's judgment, that God has come to judge the dragon and the beast, and it's like glass because he has stilled the storm and the power of evil. We've seen this described once before in Revelation 4, 6, where God, who sits on the throne and rules, he is shown to be victorious over evil and this world, and the sea is like glass before him as well. This is a picture of the weary saints in this book of Revelation making it to their eternal summer. Right now, I know we're not at summer yet, both literally with the season being fussy and cold still, but also in life as well. The new heavens and the new earth have not been ushered in. We are in this tension of the already and not yet, but revelation has come here to remind you that that day is going to come, that you are going to be near the sea and it's going to be calm and you will rest from your labors. Right now we're not standing with Christ on Mount Zion, because right now many of us are in the valley. What does it mean to live in the valley until we're taking up to this mountain next to the calm sea? And I was thinking about this this week, and I actually had an experience where uh, I got to, uh, through God's providence, meet uh, one of God's saints that preached the gospel to me. And it was in one of the most unexpected ways that that uh, you just wouldn't see it coming. I mean, I expect you all to preach the gospel to you, me, and you do a great job, but this was somebody on a call for customer service that did it. That's what was happening. I was calling about healthcare and asking all these questions from uh, a customer service about healthcare, care, and that uh, was supposed to be just a routine call where you're you talk about patient endurance, I mean, calling healthcare, you know, <laughs> customer service line is one that requires such a thing. But in this situation, it, it turned to just gospel-centered thoughts where uh, she kind of opened the door. This woman on customer service uses the word blessed, and people don't just throw that word around, especially when you're in a more secular city environment. So my pastor radar went up like, I wonder if she knows the lamb. I wonder if she knows the, and so I, so I throw it out there uh, there and just said, hey, I'm, I'm a pastor. And then she flung open that door. She's like, oh, you're a pastor, and we get to talking about faith, and she learns a little bit uh, about me and my story, so she learns that I have uh, chronic cancer, and that that's part of the reason I'm asking all these questions about health insurance. And she just decided to, I don't know, throw any type of employee policy out the window where you're not supposed to talk to people about religion. And she just straight up preached the gospel to me, to a weary saint that just needed to hear the gospel like we all do. And she shared this poem with me that she read that morning, and it's actually like it's, it felt a little bit like one of those poems that if you grow up and you had like a grandmother that was really faithful to the Lord and she'd have like one of those Hobby Lobby pictures or something like that, it would be like... <laughs> be like a poem that would be on there, but I don't, it worked in the moment it worked, and I mean, it was part cheesy, but it was really like, it was rich theology, and it's something that I needed, and this, this, this uh, woman of God was just like reading me straight up gospel, so I wanted to, to read the, the poem that she read to me. It's a poem called, It's in the Valleys that I Grow. This is what it says. Sometimes life seems hard to bear, full of sorrow, trouble, and woe. It's then I have to remember that it's in the valleys I grow. If I always stayed on the mountaintop and never experienced pain, I would never appreciate God's love and and would be living in vain. I have so much to learn and my growth is very slow. Sometimes I need the mountaintops, but it's in the valley I grow. I do not always understand why things happen as they do, but I am very sure of one thing my Lord will see me through. My little valleys are nothing, When I picture Christ on the cross, he went through the valley of death. His victory was Satan's loss. Forgive me, Lord, for complaining when I'm feeling very low. Just give me a gentle reminder that it's in the valleys I grow. Continue to strengthen me, Lord, and use my life each day to share your love with others and help them find their way. Thank you for the valleys, Lord, for this one thing I know. The mountaintops are glorious, but it's in the valleys I grow. Let's keep growing in the valleys, brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that one day we will rest on Mount Zion with Christ, with that restless, smooth sea like glass. For now, our calling is patient endurance, holding to the words of God, and staying faithful to following Christ.